before today's episode, we wanted to let you know about a festival we're co-sponsoring in June called the Seventh Stay Nine. Seventh Stay Nine will take place Saturday, June 19th at Rhizome in DC, and the lineup will be announced very soon. More information can be found at seventhstay9.com. Um, but he put it on, and um, there was something about it that um, intrigued me. It, it was the, the there was no there was no drums in it, but there was a lot of rhythm, and all the rhythm was coming from instruments which, which would normally be melodic, but it was done in such a beautiful, again, hypnotic way. I'm, I'm, quite, I'm quite drawn to hypnotic music um, that lured you in. This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives or their lives in general. work with Joy Division, drummer Stephen Morris was present at what could be described as the Big Bang of post-punk, and continued to help shape it for many years after as a member of New Order. His relentless but patient motoric-style drumming, as well as his incorporation of electronic percussion, can be heard not only in the still, fresh-sounding records he played on, but the countless ones that were influenced by his band's work. His most recent memoir, Fast Forward Confessions of a Post-Punk Percussionist, Volume 2, a follow-up to his first book, Record, Play, Pause, Confessions of a Post-Punk Percussionist, The Joy Division Years, was released in December by Hatchet. The first song Morris chose as being formative for him was Oh Yeah by Can.
しい My first song um, is Oh Yeah by Can from the album Tago Mago, which um, was a great influence on me in my very, very early, early days of listening to music. It was one of the、uh, first records that I got into, and it was one of the first records where I really appreciated the rhythm and particularly the drumming on it.、Um, Jackie Liebsai is my favourite drummer of, of all time. He's sort of like. I think I probably decided if I was ever going to play the drums, I would play the drums a bit like this.、Um, because it was. It just seemed、uh, to draw you into the music. It was, he, had, he had a way of playing that was hypnotic.、Uh, and. At the same time, it sort of moved. The whole Cam's tracks were always, on Tago Mago anyway, very long, and they're sort of very much like、uh, an evolving piece, an evolving piece. And the centre of it all is、uh, Jackie's drumming, and everything else sort of comes and goes around that. And as a very young man, Young boy, I was only about 13 or 14 at the time. I was very, very impressed by it, particularly the,、um, the spacey noises. I like the eerie flying saucer effects and the singer Damo Suzuki、um, virtually singing gibberish, but it was a very powerful kind of gibberish that、um, I don't know. It, it drew me in. It was,、um, he seemed to be telling a story, but you could, you could understand him without really、um, knowing what he was saying or even what language he was saying it in. But for me, it was, Cam was always about the rhythm.、Uh, it's very simple, very, very simple,、uh, deceptively simple, deceptively simple.、Um, in fact, When I did eventually、uh, take up the, the drumsticks,、um, this was the first drum riff that, that I learned to play. It was kind of like, it's, it's quite easy to play,、uh, though I remember sort of doing it and suddenly realising, hey, this is, I'm, I'm playing, I'm playing, oh yeah, yeah. I felt really good about myself. I felt really good that somebody who was like completely untutored could. Do, yeah, could emulate somebody who I admired. Yeah. So,、uh, how, would this, uh, how would this have come into your life? This was not something you probably heard on the radio.、Um, no, 
No, I mean it probably did get played on very late at night, but I was I was tucked up in bed by then. Now, what um, how it happened is uh, I had a school friend um, who had an older brother, and we'd go round to my friend's house, and uh, he'd say, "Oh, let's go and see what uh, Bert's up to in his in his bedroom," and we'd go in, and he was um, he was a full on uh, weirdo. <laughs> he had he had a schizophrenic haircut. Um, it, the room was decorated with your know, wallpaper, offcuts of wallpaper from sample books. He'd put all those up on the wall, and he had a, a stack of albums all neatly lined up. Um, and we'd go there, and um, he would he would introduce me to weird music. Um, the first thing was. Um, Frank Zappa, Frank Zappa and Captain Beefheart and um, The Brothers of Invention and then we moved on to the Velvet Underground and then eventually we moved on to the, uh, you know, the German side of music which was very big in, in the 70s um, and uh, yeah, I saw this record Tego Mago and uh, I was just entranced by it. It had a fantastic sleeve um, which folded out and had a picture of the band um, from the back. And um, that was one of the great things about the 12-inch record, is that you would you would look at the sleeve while you, and read the sleeve notes while you were listening to the music. And, um, yeah, they, uh, I was very intrigued as to what was going on on the stage with Can. I'd done... Uh, and how they managed to make these weird sounds. And I, I got the idea that they were using, that Jackie was using a synthesizer of some kind, which was ridiculous. Um, but I gathered that the music was put together by tape edits in a studio. There was like, there was overdubs and they were, they were obviously using a studio as a kind of musical instrument. If you know what I mean, they were build they were building up the tracks. They weren't they sounded live, but then there were bits in it which clearly couldn't have been actually played simultaneously. And it was uh, Holger who did a lot of uh, the tape editing. I became a big fan of Can. <laughs> uh, it's it's funny they've come up a number of times on the show with various uh, people as being influential and. Um, uh, we mm. and we had uh, Erman Schmidt on the show at one point, uh, which was which was oh, kind of wow. fun. Um, uh, it, it totally makes sense um, um, now that you mention it that that he would be a big influence on you because um, you know his playing is very uh, precise and it's it's you know he doesn't mm. you know he's not um, playing crazy solos you know he's not Keith Moon he's not. Um, Mitch Mitchell or someone like that. It's all about rhythm, which seems very much related to your own playing. You know, you're not doing crazy solos and a bunch of fills. It's like, this is, you know, this is the song, this is the rhythm, this is what I'm doing. No, that's exactly... Um, I mean, I did have a go in the early days at playing far too many fills, uh, but I got tired easily. No, it, it, it just struck me that that was... That was a way of playing that I liked listening to. And I, it was also a way of playing that just came quite naturally to me. Playing um, 
very simple rhythms and not doing too many fills. I mean, the whole too many fill things. Uh, I remember seeing Buddy Rich uh, on a talk show and uh, he sort of insisted on playing the drums at the end of his interview. And I thought, well, I'm never... A, I'm never going to be able to do that. And B, even if I could do that, I wouldn't want to anyway, because it was just like, I just, no, no. It's clever that people can do it, but I think it's cleverer that you can play something that's subtle and, um, you know, not showing off, not showing off. There's a school of drumming that is basically showing off, but I don't, I don't aspire to belong to that school. Um, no, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll stick with Jackie. He's, um, his playing's cool. I'd rather, I'd rather be cool than a show off. Well, see, now I'm kind of, you know, a little bit regretful that I didn't suggest that the drum solo be part of. <laughs> yeah, I'll do one. I'll just, I'll just do, I'll do one. <laughs> no. No, I won't. The second song Morris chose as essential to his formation as an artist was In Sea by Terry Riley. Terry Riley. Yeah, after we'd um, worked our way through the um, Cosmica music, um, I noticed this um, a couple of records that were tucked away in the corner and um, I picked one up and um, it was it was In C by um, Terry Riley. I said, oh, you've got to listen to this, Steve. You've got to listen to this. It's just a guy playing a piano for like 20 minutes, just going ding, 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 ding. It's brilliant. Um, now, from that recommendation, you probably, it's not really, <laughs> it doesn't inspire confidence. Um, but he put it on and um, there was something about it that um, intrigued me. It, it was... The, 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 there was no there was no drums in it, but there was a lot of rhythm, and all the rhythm was coming from instruments which, which would normally be melodic, um, and it was basically someone going ding 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 on a piano for twenty minutes, but it was done in such a beautiful. 
again hypnotic way i'm I'm quite, I'm quite drawn to hypnotic music um that lured you in and um it was a kind of sound soundtrack to some imaginary movie going on going on in your head and it was that was my introduction to the work of the minimalists um and sort of after i heard in c it was like well i want you know i want to hear more um so i got into um steve reich um and philip glass it was it was was drumming i think by um steve reich which was a thing i heard next which was absolutely incredible i mean it's another thing it's and I was saying about Buddy Rich, but there's a there's a lot of skill involved in playing that kind of music, um, and it it kind of it 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 drew a picture in my mind of of how music was put together, and I, I still when I hear a piece of music um, nowadays, I kind of think of it in the same sort of terms. It's kind of like a load of uh, of gears, of wheels turning. It's kind of a very mechanical thing that there's something spinning which sets something else off spinning. And I imagine writing a piece of music, I think I think of it, um, I've got a mental picture of something like that, which is very like um, um, the sort of picture that I got in my head the first time I, I heard in C. It kind of gave me a way to imagine music if you like um which you can't really say that about, <laughs> about too many things um no um no I, I i don't know whether minimalist is the right word for it but it's uh, a kind of grown-up music that's very it's got a bit of rock spirit about it it's got a bit a lot of energy about it. it's not pastoral um Although you know, some of Phil Glass's stuff is a bit like that. I prefer the stuff where it's fast arpeggios, lots of lots of energy, um, that sort of stuff. I can't play it. I could never play. It. I could never. But I couldn't play it to save my life. Uh, but I can. I can appreciate that kind of skill that's that's got into it more than somebody showing off on a drum kit. Well, you know, I think one of the things that's appealing to, uh, to people about. Um, about NC in particular is that it's not a super complicated thing. I mean, it sounds super complicated, but it's like mostly just a lot of little parts that, you know, you play over, like the, the, the players play over and over again. And, you know, there are rules, you know, you play them. I, I forget how it goes. I've never, I'm not a musician, but you play them a certain number of times and you can play them however fast you want, but you can't, you know, there, there are rules, but it's not, you know, you're not playing like Paganini or, I don't know, Yingwei Malmsteen, no, you know, it doesn't no. require tons of virtuosity. It's just all these little things put together that make up this big hole, which um, is super impressive in lots of ways. Oh, yeah. No, I believe uh, live, it's it's absolutely fantastic. I mean, I've got, I've got the live one and it does explain um, sort of how it is as you say like a, a, a series of little things that fit together and evolve and play against each other um it's yeah it's 
gloriously simple, gloriously simple, but I bet it's I bet it's not that easy to play. I would love to see it though. I would love to see someone do it live. I have to ask, does does Bert know of the clearly profound uh, influence he had on on your life and your 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 future? Um I, I think so. I think I've, I've written about it in the book, so ho- hopefully, as if, if he's still with us, I've not, se- I've not seen him for a long. T- the last time I saw him, I was changing a wheel, had a puncture, uh, and he just walked past me, said, "How do, Steve?" And that was like, that was that was about f- five or six years ago. Um, we've not remained close. We've not remained close. Um, but I hope so. I hope so because he was. Um, he, he, his record collection sort of steered, um, yeah, steered my musical career, basically. If, it, if I hadn't have heard NC or Tago Mago, I'd, I wouldn't be doing this. I wouldn't be talking to you today. The final song Morris chose as being crucial to him was The Adventures of Grandmaster Flash on the Wheels of Steel by Grandmaster Flash. You see, 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 one for the trouble, two for the time. Come on, girls, let's rock that. You say one for the trouble, two for the time. Come on, girls, let's rock that. Master Flash and the Wheels of Steel. Um, yeah, hearing this record um, in the 1980s was like hearing the first dub record in the 1970s. It was sort of that same sort of what the hell's going on sort of thing. You knew it was, you knew all the bits, you knew, you knew the way the song was supposed to go, but all of a sudden it turns into another song and then this got scratching on. T- it was... Um, it was. I thought it was quite revolutionary, quite revolutionary that 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 somebody was taking something which was not not intrinsically a musical instrument, i.e., a record player, and using it to make music. Uh, I've always been into technology. And I think I was a bit jealous. I'd never, I had not thought of it first. It just seemed, yeah, yeah, what a great idea. Because yeah, we'd, we'd done sampling um, in Joy Division and in New Order, we got a sampler. But it just seemed like, well, who needs a sampler if you've got a record player? It's the same thing, yeah. It never, it never struck me. Uh, and it was that and... That led me into early, early hip hop, um, 
use it. And I really liked the way that um, they used technology in that. It was They were using technology as a leveler. It was... It was a, a way of making music. To me, early hip-hop um, has a lot about it that um, I felt um, when I first got in a band, when I, when I first saw the Sex Pistols. Where, well, I didn't see the Sex Pistols. Forgive me, I never saw the Sex Pistols. But, you know, um, punk. When I was moved by punk to... Uh, take up music to take up music as a form of self-expression it was another it was another form of self-expression that was youth-orientated and it had uh it you know it, it had a message it was letting people express themselves uh in a new way in the same way that um punk music had uh in the very very early days because um, I mean, the thing it was the thing about punk was it was the it was an, it enabled me and it enabled a lot of people to do things that, that they wouldn't have thought of. Uh, just suddenly seeing a band thrashing about on a stage, it wasn't oh, this is a great piece of music. It was more I could do that. Whereas up to that point, you'd be going to see. Um, uh, you know, prog rock bands, and it was all diddly 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 diddly, diddly like Buddy Rich again, diddly diddly, diddly and it's like, well, it's, no, I've not got a hope in hell of uh, ever been doing that. You know, I'd have to go to art school, I'd have to, I'd have to learn about chords and stuff, and I hadn't really got, I hadn't really got time for that. Um, I just wanted to go on and do it, and um, it was that was the thing about. That was the thing about punk, and it, I felt the same way about hip hop. That it was it, it was the same thing, but another generation, another generation's interpretation of that that um, that same feeling of uh, of being frustrated and um, finding a way to to express themselves through music. I mean, the th- the fact that hip hop's gone on to be um, a ubiquitous thing that now every every record that you hear has got, got some elements of it. I mean, they were... Hip-hop was taken from... Um, other stuff, as well, taken from early electronic music, taken from Kraftwerk, when you hear um, Planet Rock by Bambata. It was, it was taken from all those sorts of sorts of things which I, I was into and mixing it up turning it into something new and um yeah that that really that that intrigued me so much um i became a, an avid collector of um initially sugar hill records i was I was always impressed by the covers. I wondered if they could if they could ever make one with a worse cover than the last one. <laughs> they seem to excel at terrible artwork. Um, but I mean, that was kind of the, the style. The music was great. The music was great. It, it's a even with the the vinyl revival. It's a slightly lost thing that the 
having a cool 12-inch cover, you know, like Sugar Hill with the blue, with sort of the yellow thing around the center, like very identifiable yeah. and kind of cool looking. It's like you knew what that was and you knew kind of what it was going to sound like. And if you saw that in a band, it was like, right, okay, you know. And I don't know if yeah. that really exists at this point. I don't buy a lot of 12 inches anymore, I guess. No, I mean, that was the thing that we got into uh, that uh, we'd in the seventies enjoy division. We were, I was listening to albums, lots of albums. Um, and with the eighties, it kind of all moved on to the 12 inch record, um, which was great. I mean, I loved them, but there was a sort of, you were losing you, what you, you lost was the, uh, you lost the sleeve notes. I kind of missed that. I want, I wanted to know more, about what what went into the music and you never really got that which was kind of it always had a bit of an air of mystery about hey, who exactly made this record it was kind of like is it a guy is it a band um yeah it, it interested me it interested me that the facts weren't laid out in front of right. you in the complete opposite way to count well, now that I'm thinking about it, I know, like, well, Perlon, there's a label called Perlon that has really distinctive sleeves. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, yeah. Well, you know, speaking of uh, 12 inches and, and dance things, I mean, one of the things that's interesting, especially about that um, record in that particular time, is the connection that uh, springs to my mind is, um, you know, I remember watching uh, the video uh, for Confusion, the remix of Confusion with Arthur Baker, and it literally shows, you know, I think the tapes, you know, showing up at Arthur Baker's studio and him remixing uh, the New Order song Confusion into the version that you're hearing and then him taking it to the Fun House, which is a club in New York, and playing it for teenagers and sort of just watching the process of, um, you know, hip hop and uh, Latin freestyle and that sort of music making its way into the music of, you know, sort of where punk and post-punk was going through your band, New Order, um, and this kind of crossover and these things coming together, um, which, you know, fascinated me, and plus it was a great song, so win-win. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, before we did um, Power Corruption and Lies, we did, we, we, we did um, Planet Rock, and we wanted to do something with Arthur, uh, because, we, you know, we, we, we like, like the sound of his records. Uh, and, you know, pretty soon after we'd done Power Corruption Lies and Blue Monday, we just went to New York and just went to a studio with no ideas <laughs> at all. And that was what came out of it. Uh, and we went, to the, we went to the fun house and it was it had a fantastic atmosphere. It was like, um, it wasn't like, like the, all New York clubs were different. Uh, but that one was like very, very different. It was like the, um, you know, seeing break dancing like that. Uh, it, it just had a great atmosphere and spirit. And also, it was very, very late. I think it was about four or five, <laughs> six in the morning or something like that. Um, no, the video, the, the, the video was great. I think it's been remastered just recently. And, um, yeah, um, it really captures uh, what it was like at the time. It's, it's a shame we, 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 when we remastered it, we didn't put more footage in to 
you know, highlight the uh, the good times at the fun house and uh, also jelly bean jelly beans that's right he's he, he was djing i remember i remember that even though it was very late i remember the night very well <laughs> This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Hey, bro, I got something to blow your mind, man. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore and NPR. To get in touch, get more information, or buy Essential Tremors merchandise, go to EssentialPodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.